0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Okay, let's get into the study of God's word. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we come to your word with expectant hearts. Lord, wanting to learn from you, wanting to know more about who you are. But Lord, we don't just want knowledge in our heads. We want this knowledge to sink down into our hearts and transform us. And so Lord, by the power of your spirit and Lord, by your word, we ask that you would change our hearts. Give us receptive hearts to your word that hear it, that receive it, and let it have its way in our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, have you ever, have you guys ever noticed that sometimes we use words uh, without always understanding what those words mean? So, uh, you know, I wonder if this has ever happened to you, that you, you've been using a word or a phrase for maybe many years, and then at some point you realize that you've been using it wrong, right? Or you didn't actually know what it means. So this happened to me a couple of years ago. I was talking to somebody, and I used the word bystanders, and they were like, wait, did you just say bystanders like with a D? And I'm like, yeah, bro, like bystanders, you know, people who are around when something happens. And he goes, do you mean bystanders? There's no D in that word. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's somebody who's standing by. They're a stander, they're a bystander. And I was like, wrecked, I was like, Oh my gosh, my entire life. I was like in my 30s when this happened, right? I'm like, for 30 years or so, I don't know when I started saying the word, but for many years, I've been using this word incorrectly. My computer had literally been correcting me and telling me I was spelling it wrong, but I just thought there was something wrong with my computer. What does the computer know? It's spelling spelled bystanders. Well, turns out I was wrong. You know, uh, there's uh, several other examples of this. For example, the word factoid, right? We we tend to use this word, oh, hey, hey, here's a cool factoid. You know why? Because we think that a factoid is like a small fact, like a miniature fact. But you know what a factoid is if you look it up? A factoid is actually the opposite of a fact. It's something that's not true. It's something that people assume is true, but is not actually true, like what we would call fake news, right? So the word factoid was fake news before the word fake news was fake news, right? Like, and in fact, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? That we use the word factoid to mean something that people think it means, but it doesn't actually mean that. Another word is the word peruse, right? We tend to use the word peruse where we're like, oh, I was perusing the stores at the mall. I was perusing this article, you know, which means to us when we use it most of the time, uh, unless you're using it correctly, which is that we think it means to give like a cursory glance or to give like a casual look at something and not a careful look, but it actually means just the opposite. The meaning of the word peruse originally means to look at something in detail, like to go over it with a fine tooth comb, to, to look at it very carefully, not the opposite. Now, this same thing can happen when it comes to the Bible. There are words and phrases that you might read in the Bible, and and you get so used to hearing these words or saying them or maybe singing them in songs that maybe you realize after a while that you've never taken the time to make sure you actually know what this means. And, and so, over this past month, we have been looking at some of this, some of these titles that are given to Jesus because we've been in a study called the Promise of a savior. You generally we like to go through books of the Bible verse by verse, but for the season of Advent every year we take a break and we do a special Advent series where we look at the incarnation, which means the coming of God into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, so what we've been doing for Advent this year is going through some of the Old Testament promises that led up to and culminated with the coming of Jesus on the very first Christmas. Now, as we've done that, we been looking at some of the titles and names that are given to Jesus in the Bible. And we've been talking about what they mean. So for example, we looked at a few weeks ago, what does it mean that Jesus is the son of man? What does that actually mean? And we looked into that. We looked into what does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? That's one that a lot of people assume that they understand, but I think actually many people, many people don't really understand what it means. So we talked about that. Well, today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to look at one more promise. It's a promise that I had wanted to look at in this series and it didn't fit into the flow. So today's the day we're going to look at it. And it's going to be from the Old Testament where God had given another promise about who the this savior would be that he was going to send into the world. And as we look at this promise, it's going to help us to understand the meaning of another title that we use sometimes. But let's make sure we know what it means. It's the word Messiah. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? And why is it important for you and me today? All right. So here's our sentence for today. This is your takeaway truth. And it's also our outline for how we're going to study our message. So write this down, memorize it, take a photo. Whatever you got to do. The promised Savior would be the true anointed one, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. That's what we're going to be looking at today in our text and in this study. The promised Savior would be the true anointed one, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. So let's break that sentence down as we study our text this morning. The promised Savior would be the true anointed one. You know, many people, when they, they think about the Bible or when they look at the Bible, they assume. That the Bible is an ancient book, which is made up of a lot of stories, which it is. And those stories tell the history of Israel and they give us some insights into God. Now that's all true, but here's the good news. The Bible is not just that. The Bible is that, but it's actually something so much more. It's something so much better. You know what it is? The Bible itself is a story. All of those little stories that make up parts of the Bible, together, all of those stories work together to tell one big story. And the big story that the Bible tells is the story of a person. It's the story of a person who God promised that he would send into the world to fix everything that is wrong and everything that is broken in the world, to set things right. Now, here's what's interesting. For over half of the Bible— We are told some things about this person, but we are not told what his name is. We're not told the name of this person. I mean, just think about that. An entire book dedicated to a person, but for half the book, you don't even know what his name is. For more than half the book, you don't know what his name is. The the Bible was being written for hundreds of years in real time as God was giving these promises about this person who would come, who would be born, who would come, and, and what he was going to do when he came to save us and to set things right. But even though they didn't know this person's name, they did have titles and words that they used to describe him and to identify him. And one of the main words that they used to describe and identify this person was the word Messiah, the word Messiah. And, And what does that mean? Well, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word, which means anointed one. Anointed one. Well, that's all well and good, but what does that mean? What does it mean that he is the anointed one? Well, here's what it meant. In ancient Israel, there were three classes of people who would be anointed with oil when they took office, when they started their job, during their inauguration ceremony. Literally, oil would be poured on top of their heads. That's what it means that they were anointed with oil. And that Oil being poured over the top of their heads was a symbol. It symbolized God's power and authority upon them to carry out those special callings that they had. And those three classes of people were prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests. Priests and kings. And they each had a different role, right? So the the prophets, their role was they were revealers. Prophets revealed the truth about God, who God is, and what his will is for your life. They were revealers. They revealed the truth about God and God's truth for you. Next, there were the priests. So, whereas the prophets spoke to the people on behalf of God, the priests did just the opposite. They stood before God on behalf of the people to intercede seed for the people, to, to, uh, make sacrifices that would obtain mercy for the people because they had sinned because they had failed because they had done things that were wrong so the priests were there to obtain mercy for the people you could say if a prophet's a redeemer a pre or sorry prophet is a revealer then a priest is a redeemer and then finally you had the kings and the job of the kings was to make sure that society was orderly and that it was safe and that it was just and fair. So the job of the kings was to dispense justice, to make sure that justice and judgment were carried out in order to have an orderly society. So you could say that the kings were rulers. Now, in Israel's history, did you know there was only one person ever who was both a prophet and a priest? One person was both a prophet and a priest. That was the prophet Samuel. Now, also, there was one priest who was also a king. That was a man Melchizedek, but he lived even before the Jewish law was given. He's a bit of a bit of a um, outlier. Now, listen. There was never anybody who ever fulfilled all three of these roles: prophet, priest, and king. At the same time, nobody could ever do it. And there was a reason for that. Part of the reason was because, as we're going to see, there would be a bit of a conflict of interest between these three roles. Now, there were many prophets in Israel's history. There were many priests. There were many kings. So these were all people who were anointed with oil. They were anointed ones. But when the Jewish people used the word Messiah, they used it to refer to a singular person, the anointed one. And the anointed one, what that meant is that this person who they knew that God was going to send, this promised Savior, he would be the one who would fulfill all three of these offices perfectly and fully. He would be the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, and the ultimate prophet at the same time. Now, all other prophets, priests, and kings, they foreshadowed some aspect of who this person, this promised Savior, would be, but they only foreshadowed an aspect they never foreshadowed the whole thing in, in one person so each of these classes of people who were anointed they foreshadowed a part or an aspect of who the anointed one the messiah would be when he came now messiah is a hebrew word but there's also a greek word that meant the same thing that is the word christos in greek or as we pronounce it in english the word Christ. Listen, by the time that Jesus was born, the Greek language and culture had spread so much throughout the world because of Alexander the Great, that there were a lot of Jewish people in Israel and outside of Israel at the time when Jesus was born who spoke Greek, but they no longer spoke Hebrew. They spoke Greek, but they no longer speak Hebrew. So, so, For them, they created Greek-speaking synagogues and they had a translation of the Old Testament into the Greek language, which was called the Septuagint. And also, because people outside of Israel could speak Greek, but they couldn't speak Hebrew, the early Christians, when it came to talking about Jesus and writing about Jesus and telling people about Jesus, they chose to do so in the Greek language so that more people could understand. So as many people as possible could hear and know who Jesus was and what he had done. So when the early Christians, when they wrote about Jesus, when they spoke about Jesus, rather than using the Hebrew word Messiah, they chose to use the Greek word primarily, the word Christ to explain who he was. It means the same thing in both languages. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. They both mean anointed one. So when you hear the name Christ, understand that's not Jesus' last name, right? If Jesus shows up at a hotel, they don't greet him by saying, "Good evening, Mr. Christ," right? It's uh it's not a it's also not a more formal or proper way to refer to Jesus because you don't want to say his first name, right? It's his office, it's his a title, it's a description of who he is. The word Christ means the same thing as Messiah. It describes who he is. So when Jesus asks his disciples, for example, in Matthew chapter 16, he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? This is why Peter responds, and he says, you are the Christ. What he's saying is, you are the promised Savior, the promised Messiah, the one who would come and would be in one prophet, priest, and king, the ultimate prophet, ultimate priest, ultimate king. In the Gospel of John, at the end of the Gospel of John, John says, Okay, all my cards are on the table, full disclosure. Everything I have written in this letter, I have written for one reason, one purpose. I have written them so that you would believe. And believe what? He says, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, let's talk about what those three offices are and what it means that Jesus fulfills all of them. Okay, the the promised Savior would be, and this is back to our sentence, the true anointed one. He would be the ultimate prophet, first of all. The ultimate prophet. Now, that's why I told you to open to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. The book of Deuteronomy. Moses says something really incredible in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you're not familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, let me tell you about it because it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. The book of Deuteronomy is a speech that Moses gave at the end of his life. He was over a hundred years old. He had seen God do incredible things. He had seen the plagues in Egypt. He had seen the Passover. He had crossed through the Red Sea. He had eaten manna from heaven. And now here he was, over a hundred years old, and he knows that the end of his life is coming. So, what does he do? He gathers up the young people of Israel and he wants to speak to them one last time before he dies. And so, he gives this speech, and the speech is recorded. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, I love some of the things that Moses says. Do you know that the book of Deuteronomy talks more about God's love than almost any other book in the Old Testament? In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving this speech to the young people of Israel, and he says, Guys, I want want you to know this. God loves you. And just as God has been faithful to us in the past, God loves you and he will be faithful to you now. And because you know that God loves you and will be faithful to you, you can take his hand and walk with him. You can trust him with your whole life and do exactly what he says. You can boldly trust him and follow him. But you know what's another thing that Moses says in this speech in Deuteronomy that's unique to Deuteronomy? He tells them to To pay attention to the scriptures, to pay attention to the scriptures, to read them, to, to memorize them, to read them to their children, to get their children to memorize them, to write them on their doorposts, right? Like you might write scripture verses on sticky notes, put them on your mirror. This is the kind of thing that Moses told the people of Israel to do in the book of Deuteronomy. Get the word of God into your head and into your heart. Now, why is that unique to the book of Deuteronomy? Here's why. Because Deuteronomy, again, is a speech that Moses gave at the end of his life. By the time he's giving this speech, God has given through Moses the other four books of what we call the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He's already given them Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers through Moses. Moses has functioned as a prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is a mouthpiece for God. What the prophet says is what God says, right? So what God says is what the prophet says. And he has been an oracle for God, a mouthpiece for God through whom God has spoken to the people and revealed things about himself and his will for their lives. So through Moses have come the first five books Now as he gives this speech, this is the fifth, he's given them the scriptures. So now as he gives this speech, he says, take heed to the scriptures. Listen, for the Jewish people, Moses was considered the greatest of all the prophets because through Moses came the Ten Commandments and the law, the books of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, all of these things, which are by many Jewish people considered to be the most important books of the Old Testament. It was also through Moses that God did many of his most famous and greatest miracles. Listen, there were other prophets who came in Israel's history. There were people like Isaiah and Jeremiah who spoke and wrote down the prophecies that God gave them. There were people like Elijah and Elisha who didn't write or speak so much as they did miracles, which revealed something about God. But none of these prophets could hold a candle to Moses. Because Moses had done the thing that no one else had done. He had given them the Torah and God had done many of his greatest miracles by Moses' hand. So with that in mind, that Moses is considered the greatest of all the prophets, consider what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. And look at this next verse. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses, what is he doing? He's going on record in a prophecy that is being recorded and written down for future generations to read and to see. And he says, one day. Remember this, one day, God is going to send you a prophet who will be like me, but he will be greater than me. You listen to me, but you will listen to him more so. And if anyone fails to listen to him, God's judgment will come upon them. He's saying there will come a prophet to whom you must listen, a prophet who will be even greater than me. Now listen, the Jewish people heard this prophecy, they understood it, and we know that for generation after generation, the Jewish people waited and waited and waited and looked for this prophet to come. But here's what we also know. We know that by the time that Jesus was born, that we know this prophecy still had not been fulfilled, that the Jewish people were still waiting for and looking for the prophet who would be greater than Moses. Other prophets had come, but none of them was greater than Moses. They were still waiting and looking for this prophet who Moses had spoken of. Here's how we know this. It it says in the Gospel of John, chapter one, that when John the Baptist came on the scene telling people to repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, the people came and they said, hey, this guy might be the prophet about whom Moses spoke. But John said, no, 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 I'm not him. There is one coming after me who is greater than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how much greater he is than me. And then when Jesus came, and we read in the Gospel of John chapter six that people came to him and they said, "Okay, are you the prophet who Moses spoke about?" And interestingly, Jesus said, "Yes." I am the prophet who Moses spoke about. Not only did Jesus say, I am a prophet, you know what else he said? He quoted from Deuteronomy 18 and said, I do not speak of my own accord, but I only speak the words that the father gave me. Do you remember Jesus said that multiple times? You realize that that's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses said, this prophet will come and he will only speak the words that the father tells him to speak. So Jesus' disciples, they also understood that Jesus was the prophet who Moses had promised. For example, in the book of Acts, chapter 3, Peter is preaching to a crowd of people about Jesus. Now look at what he says. He says, Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet will be destroyed from the people. And then he said, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. What he's saying is this, Jesus is the ultimate prophet and Jesus is the one of whom all the prophets spoke and pointed to. Here's how the writer of the book of Hebrews explains how Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Prophet. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 1. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making pure Purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These verses tell us several things about Jesus and what makes him the ultimate prophet. First of all, Jesus is the ultimate prophet because he is God himself come to us to reveal himself to us. He created the world, it says he upholds the world, and now he has come to us. What this means is that in the person of Jesus, God has not only sent us someone to tell us who he is, God himself has come to us to show us and to reveal himself to us and to show us who he is and what his will is for our lives. But the second way that Jesus is the ultimate prophet is that he revealed something about God to us by what he did for us. He revealed something about God to us by what he did for us. He did something that no other prophet has ever done. And what is that? We're told there in Hebrews that he made purification for sin. Look at how John explains this in the gospel of John chapter one. He says this, for the law was given through Moses But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Listen, what is the law? The law is the standard, God's standard of right and wrong. And that was given through Moses in the Ten Commandments and the law. But although Moses could tell us what is right and what is wrong, he could not help us with our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is what do we do if and when we do what is wrong? What what do we do if and when we break God's law? Listen, if you break the law and you go to... You get arrested and you go to jail. And I go down to visit you at the jail and I sit down and I say, hey, what you did was wrong. That was bad. You shouldn't have done that. You know what you're going to say to me? You're going to say, I understand that. That's, I get it. I'm in jail. But what you're telling me right now is not helping me. This doesn't help me get out of jail. I know that what I did was wrong. Listen, it's one thing to go to somebody and say, what you did was wrong but it's another thing altogether to go to somebody who's in jail and put down the cold, hard cash that will bail them out. It's one thing to go and tell somebody what you did was wrong. It's another thing altogether to go to somebody and say, let me swap places with you. Let me take your place and take your judgment so that you can go free. Listen, Moses was great, but Moses, all he could do was tell us what was right and wrong. He couldn't help us with what to do when we have broken God's law. You see, the reason why Jesus is the ultimate prophet is because he revealed God's heart in a way that no one else ever could because he was God come to us to be our priest and our redeemer. That brings us to the next part of the sentence. The promised savior would be a true, the true anointed one, the ultimate prophet, but also the ultimate priest. You know, the priests were mediators of God's mercy to the people. They presented the sacrifices which would atone for or cover up their sins, albeit temporarily. You see, just as the role of the prophets pointed to one aspect of who the Messiah would be, that he would be a revealer of God's truth, the role of the priest pointed to another aspect of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. You see, though, these sacrifices that the priests made, they had to be repeated over and over again. You know why? Because they were covering up the sin of the people. They weren't taking it away. You could think of it like this. It'd be like if you were on death row and you got a stay of execution. Well, a stay of execution doesn't take away your punishment. It just postpones it. It just postpones. It'd be like if you racked up a lot of credit card debt and they're going to come and take everything you own, but you call them and say, what's the minimum amount that I could pay to postpone you coming and taking away all my things? You're not fixing the problem. You're just kind of pushing it down the line. You're postponing it. You're biding your time. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were like. They didn't fix the problem. They didn't solve the problem. They just covered them and bought you some time. That's why they had to be repeated over and over and over. But all of these sacrifices and the work of the priests, they all pointed forward to the one true anointed one who would come and make the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We're told about this in the book of Hebrews chapter 9. We're told that Christ came, the true anointed one. He came and he appeared as the true high priest, to which all other high priests had only pointed. And he entered God's heavenly throne room, not with the blood of goats and bulls, but with his own blood so that he could secure for us an eternal redemption. Listen, not only was Jesus the ultimate prophet, he was the ultimate priest. He was the priest to end all priests, which is why it's significant that only a few years after Jesus ascended into heaven, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and even to this day has not yet been rebuilt. Do you understand that after Jesus, the priest to end all priests, made his sacrifice since that time, or a few years after that time, there have been no sacrifices made. There have been no, the work of priests has ceased in Israel because the temple has been destroyed and hasn't yet been rebuilt. Jesus was the ultimate priest who presented the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice to which all other sacrifices were only shadows and only pointed to the sacrifice of himself. Here's, here's the thing. The reason why Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Remember the role of prophets is to reveal something about God. The reason Jesus is the ultimate prophet is because he's also the ultimate priest. You see, the role of prophets was to reveal who God is and the ultimate expression of God's love, of God's heart for you, of God's will for your life was found on the cross of Calvary where Jesus died as a sacrifice for you. When Jesus hung on the cross as the ultimate priest, not sacrificing an animal, but sacrificing himself for the sins of the people, for your sins, he revealed something about God that could not be revealed in any other way. You know what Jesus said? He said, greater love has no one than this, than that they would give their life for their friends. We had made ourselves enemies of God by breaking his law, by disregarding his law. And yet God came to us and treated us not as enemies, but as friends by giving his life for us. He showed us that he truly loved us, not only with his words, but by his actions. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But there's one more aspect of who Jesus is as the anointed one. The promised Savior, this is our our takeaway truth, the promised Savior would be the, the true anointed one, the ultimate prophet, ultimate priest, and also the ultimate king. You see, the role of kings was to be God's instruments for justice. If you look at Romans chapter 13, it says right there that the ruling authorities are God's servants to carry out God's wrath on those who do wrong. The God's servants to carry out God's wrath on those who do wrong. Now, whereas priests were mediators of God's mercy, understand kings were mediators of God's judgment on earth. And this is why it was forbidden for any of the kings of Israel to also be a priest, because there would be a conflict of interest. As a king, they would be obligated and required to carry out justice and dispense judgment. But as a priest, their job would be to do just the opposite, to dispense mercy In fact, we see this. This is actually a major tension throughout the Bible. It's a question that runs throughout all of the Old Testament. Who will God turn out to be in the end? Will he turn out to be, in the end, a God of justice or a God of mercy? Because it really seems like he can't be both. Let me explain. Listen, what it means that God is a God of justice, it means that he says this about himself, that he will by no means clear the guilty. Every infraction, every sin, every person who does something wrong will get exactly and fully what they deserve. And listen, that's really comforting if you have been on the receiving end of bad things, evil things happening to you. If you have been a victim of someone else's wrongdoing, then it's comforting to know that God sees it and he will fully and righteously deal with it. But you know what? On the other hand, it's also a little bit disconcerting. In fact, it's very disconcerting. You know why? Because as we talked about earlier, it's not only that we are on the receiving end of bad things. There are always times in our lives, there have been times in your life where you have been the one who did wrong. You've been the the one who did wrong. And so it's disconcerting to know that God will be a God of justice when it comes to you. So we want justice when it comes to others, but what about when it comes to us? What will we do? And the, the hope that the gospel gives us is that God is not only a God of justice, but he is a God of mercy. But you see, the problem with this If God is going to blot out sins, if God is going to wipe away the wrongs that we've done, if he's going to clear our record of wrongs, well, isn't that contradictory? Don't we have a problem here? You see, which one is it? Is God a God of justice or is God a God of mercy? Who will he turn out to be in the end? Because he can't possibly be both, can he? If justice means giving someone the judgment that they deserve for the wrong things they've done, but mercy means just the opposite. Mercy means not giving someone the judgment they deserve for the wrong things they've done. How can those two things ever be reconciled? How can they both be true at the same time? It can only be one or the other. The job of a king is to do justice and dispense judgment, but the job of a priest is to dispense mercy You see, the problem is if God dispenses judgment on evildoers, then he's just, but he's not merciful. If God dispenses mercy, then how is that fair? How is it just? But here's the good news of the gospel. Here's how Jesus is the answer to this great riddle. You see, on the cross, he revealed that God is the ultimate king, the one who dispenses judgment perfectly for every infraction and every offense And he is the ultimate priest who obtains mercy by presenting a sacrifice. It's possible because Jesus is the king and he is the priest and he himself is the sacrifice. What that means is that God as king took the judgment upon himself that you deserved so that you could receive mercy. On the cross, Jesus took the judgment of God. The justice of God was fully satisfied on the cross because Jesus took the judgment that we deserved. That is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that God in this way is both just and the one who justifies those whose faith is in Christ Jesus. And it is in this way that Jesus is also the ultimate prophet because he doesn't only reveal God's heart through his words. He reveals who God is and how God feels and what God's will is through your life, ultimately on the cross. In the greatest act of loves, he shows, he proves, this is who God is. He is one who loves you. He is one who redeems you. He is one who takes the judgment for your sin so that he can bring you into his eternal kingdom forever and make you his child. Listen, what Moses did or what Moses told us about this anointed one. He said, when he comes, make sure you listen to him. Make sure you do what he says and listen to him. Listen, if Jesus is the true anointed one, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, then to honor him, to listen to him, to give heed to him is to honor him in each of these ways, each of these aspects of who he is. He's a prophet, which means that he's the revealer. He's a priest, which means that he's the redeemer. And he's a king, which means he's a ruler. And what I want you to do is ask yourself this today as we go. Are you honoring Jesus in each of those ways of who he is in your life? Do you revere him as revealer? Do you receive his words as the truth? Do you trust in him as your redeemer? And finally, do you submit to him as your ruler? You might say, oh, I like the redeemer part. I'm not sure about the ruler part. No, you can't separate these. This is who he is. He is the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king in one. So we must honor him as the one who gives us the truth, honor him as the one who redeems our souls, and honor him as the one who is deserving of all of our allegiance and devotion. Jesus is the promised Savior of whom all the prophets spoke and whom all the priests foreshadowed. He is the eternal King. God come to us to reveal himself to us by showing us his love, by redeeming us so we could be with him forever. Friends, he is worthy of all of our praise in all of our lives. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com